Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room Podcast Editor. Thanks for joining us today. So often in contemporary conversations about gender in the military, the focus these days is on the role of women as service members. Uh, women are as soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. Um, but this isn't the whole story, or maybe even most of it. And for a long period of American history, Women um, were around and sort of following militaries, but not necessarily in them. And so to talk about some of this uh, development and some of these relationships over the 20th century, I'm really pleased to be joined in the studio by Dr. Kara dixon Vuk, who is the Lance Corporal Benjamin W. Schmidt Professor of War, Conflict, and Society in 20th Century America at Texas Christian University. And so we're going to talk about uh, the role that civilian women Uh, who participated in formal programs to bring recreation and entertainment to troops serving overseas uh, played throughout the 20th century. So welcome to War Room, Kara. Thanks, Jackie. All right, so we'll start with um, the sort of conceptual level problem for the military. What's the challenge that they they envision or the, the problem or opportunity that they see, and what role is it that these civilian women are playing in solving that problem or meeting that challenge in the early days of sort of the united states entering world war one um before actually the u.s actually enters the war they start to think about selective service and mobilizing an army and sending them to france which as everybody knew in the early days of the war was the land of debauchery and evil and Mm -hmm. nothing good came out of france and so (laughs) when the u.s government threatened to draft young men and send them to France, the American public started to get very concerned about what might happen to their boys. Right. And so we're going to send these boys over to France. It's going to be terrible. Or like good American, right? very naive. Oh, yes. Innocent. Good, poor boys from home boys. who might possibly be led astray. By loose French women. Oh, yeah. Floozies, and I think croissants. was the term. Um, <laughs> right. These men, these boys, they're always boys. They never seek out trouble. It just finds them. Mm-hmm. They're seduced into trouble. And so all of these progressive era reformers had the very bright idea to send good Christian girls from home who also happened to be cute, um, send them to France to serve donuts and make small talk, and all will be fine. That's the idea. Now, that idea sort of changes over the 20th century. Um, The military kind of gives up the idea that the boys are not going to get into trouble if we just send over girls. But the idea of, you know, we have to boost morale, we have to give them something to fight for, um, we have to send over these kind of supportive images of home, that idea did not go away. Mm -hmm. So it starts as a protective sort of moralistic Mm -hmm. measure, and it morphs into still a protective measure, but protecting morale and sort of mental, like now we'd say mental health and sort of welfare of American uh, service, service members overseas. So... When we t- and, and again, if, if it changes over time, we can we can talk about that too. But who who are the women? So you, you said sort of cute young American 
roles. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about what that means? Yeah. So for most of the 20th century, they are by and large white middle class um, women from sort of middle America, right? That's the, that's the image, right? These are women who have some post high school graduation or some post high school education Um, by the Vietnam war. They have to have a college degree. Um, So they have some sort of college you know, background. Um, they're outgoing, they're adventurous. They, you know, want to do something for the war effort. They want to do their bit, you know, as it were. Um, but they're still overwhelmingly single. Um, they're white, they're middle-class. Um, that's sort of the image. Um, So sort of narrow slice mm -hmm. of American life. I mean, it sounds sort of nostalgic, sort of an archetypal sort of Americana right idea and and the the title of your book is the girls next door Mm -hmm. and i imagine that's sort of what they're supposed to portray and right average womanhood you know um she's supposed to at various times remind you of your mama your sister your sweetheart possibly your wife all of those things are very different rolled in kinds a, of rolled into one. symbolic roles. But at times the, the expectation really is that these women represent all of that, right? You can be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. So you could be, you could sort of sit down and have a cup of coffee with this, you know, farm boy from Iowa who's never been away from home. And you could sort of be that maternal influence on him. Or you could sit down with the college guy, you know, from, you know, from your home state and you could, um, kind of be the draw that gets him into the club, gets him away from trouble, so to speak. Um, Still getting them away from, from right. trouble. Right. So are the <laughs> are the women who participate in these things, are they recruited? Do they apply? What's the selection process? Yeah, there's like? some recruitment involved um, from organizations like the Red Cross, um, from the YMCA, from the USO. Um, and then there's a, f- it's formal process of, a- of re- application, but it's in terms of, you know, the documents, it's, it's still very um, fluid. So you would apply to the Red Cross, for example, in World War II, you would submit some letters of reference and you would have an interview with um, either a local official, if you were white, if you were African-American, you had to go to DC to be vetted by the National Hmm. Uh, Red Cross. So there was a, an extra layer of vetting um, for African-American women. And so are these organizations always sort of existing outside of the formal structure of the military with the exception of um special services beginning in sort of in the korean war era um special services so after world war ii the army um, in particular decided to take on some of this morale boosting work um itself and that became special services which then evolved into mwr today so these these women go overseas what do they what do they do when they get there they work in recreation huts uh, or clubs, depending on the, the terminology changes by war. Um, but they go and they work in a club. They serve coffee and donuts. They sell cigarettes sometimes. They um, organize dances, which were a big hit across all wars, of course. They, um, you know, by the Vietnam War, they check out the ping pong paddles that you can check out to play, mm-hmm. um, you know, or pool or that kind of thing. So they're running a club. If they're in the USO, they're performers, and so that kind of work is a little bit different. Um, they're on tour, you know, across the theater. So entertaining rather mm-hmm. than sort of one-on-one interactions. Right. Right. Um, are the are the women paid for this work? They are paid. Um, not, it's not exorbitant, but from what I understand, um, the way they, that these women characterized it, it was a 
decent wage for the time and considering that they didn't have living expenses. Right. And for single women who write post-college, it certainly not probably a career, right? This is a temporary right. thing that they're going to do for for a little while. Right. How long do they usually do they usually stay? Um, in World War One and World War Two, your contract was for the duration plus six months, just like the military. Though uh, you could leave at any time, mm-hmm. it was just kind of um, probably contract is a bit too strong, <laughs> strong of a word. Okay. Even um, it's just kind of the understanding. By Korea, Vietnam, um, it's a one year tour. So it, in some way, it mimics the military, the standard military mm-hmm. tour. So, what are some of the um, ways that that women experienced this time overseas and and with and near American troops mm-hmm. in a, in foreign places? Um, I imagine there's a there's a range of responses and a range right. of interpretations, um, but maybe you can walk us through some of the some of the trends or patterns. Yeah, for a lot of them, it's their just like a lot of the men, it's their first time away from home. Um, and so they're doing this very adventurous, often very dangerous thing um, in going abroad, going to a war zone. Um, and often they get there and they, a lot of the women are very idealistic about what they think their work is going to be. Um, so one of the women I talk about, Emma Dixon in World War I, she gets to France, she opens her hut and she's, she's very idealistic. She gets up and she makes a speech to these, these men and she says, you know, think of me as your sister and your mother and I'll, I'll I'll be here for you, basically. And then in the next few pages of her diary, there are pictures of her with all these lieutenants, like, smiling and gazing at mm-hmm. her. Or, you know, her diary says that, you know, yet another man proposed to me. Right. Or they're all in love with me. And she's very quickly trying to fend off the men. And I think that's a common pattern. You get a 20-something-year-old single young woman. Who's, who like, really recruited to be outgoing and cute. Right. Right. And to make these men feel very welcome. And so you're supposed to really like develop this camaraderie with them that borders on flirtation without crossing this invisible line in the sand. And that's all fun and wonderful for like two weeks. And then they're by and large, they're like, I don't ever want to see another man again. Yeah. Right. It gets old very quickly, but you can't ever say, I just need a break because your whole right. job is to be there to make these men feel it's like to make the them center of the universe. Better. So, I mean, that's an incredible, like, emotional labor yes. that's happening. Um, yes. And the the burden you can imagine, I, I thinking about, like, the duration of the war, even a year, it just yeah. seems like a really incredible weight to ask um, these young women to bear. Did they have any outlets for... <laughs> For that sort of emotional labor that they're that they're taking on, not really. I mean, not in a formal sense. No, um, they got R and Rs, um, and that helped, um, and their friendships with each other really. Yeah. But there's no kind of formal way in which the military or these organizations mm-hmm. even are kind of paying attention to them. Really horrible case um in world war ii women who worked with pilots learned very quickly to stop learning the men's names because mm-hmm. they often didn't come back and the women kind of talked about that like feeling like they're supposed to be there to build these relationships with these men but then learning very quickly that if they're going to get through their tour they can't have those relationships there has to be some men. distance yeah bet- between that um yeah. how are they how are they organized and sort of managed when they were when they were overseas who's who's in charge of them Uh, the organizations in theory um so they would be sent out to their um 
their clubs or their huts, um, but often they're they're the only women around. There's not mm-hmm. like a supervisor um, directly over them who they see every day, right? The supervisor may come through periodically, right. or they but they're might dispersed be, yeah. in some cases. Yeah. So yeah. when they're when they're how many of them might be in one in sort of one place? Did they at least have sort of camaraderie and friendships that could develop among yeah. among the women? At least two people per station, okay. um, and that's, that's generally lot. across across all wars as well. So they wouldn't wouldn't by policy send a woman by herself mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, I'm sure that happened on occasion, or if somebody were transferred out or whatever, but. Yeah. But by and large, they would send two women at least to a club or a hut or a club mobile in World War II or whatever the case was. When we think about sort of the women's experience, do we have any sense of how how men sort of interpreted their their presence, mm-hmm. uh, the presence of, of donut dollies or the uh, women from the from the USO or the clubs? Yeah, it's, and again, it's all across the yeah. board, right? I mean, some of the men really value that and are genuinely. Um, appreciative of these women, you know, sacrificing their time, going to the war zone, going through this experience with them. Um, some of the men are quite confused about what the women's purpose is there. Um, and you, there are women who talk about sort of men expecting that they're there for um, not the moralistic reasons mm-hmm. that they were sent there for, right? You have men who are genuinely confused and think that they are there um, as prostitutes. And then you have some... You could imagine how this confusion <laughs> happens. Right. Like, that's not, like, an incredible logical leap. Right. And <laughs> rumors start spreading. Right. And then also um, part of the problem with that was that um, the women were given sort of pseudo-officer status in terms of their billeting. And so when they tried to say... When the organizations tried to say, well, you can, you can date officers or we prefer you date officers mm-hmm. instead of enlisted men then all of that sort of class tension, class and, and status, right tension, yeah. right, between officers and enlisted men, young enlisted guys think, well, why do the officers get to hang out with these women whose job it is primarily to be there for enlisted men? And yeah. you know, the rumor mill, it starts to spread, and there's a rumor mill across all the wars. Um, by the Vietnam War, it's quite specific, right, that you could get a donut dolly for $65, which was mm-hmm. your combat pay, right? Um it's amazing how specific that gets. Yeah. But there, I think some men who like genuinely just thought that was the policy and approach these women. And then they're like, what? what? I'm not here for that. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's not my when, job. But I, and at the same time, I also imagine that you, you put young people sort of in, in environments together and that there are mm-hmm. almost certainly romantic or sexual yes. relationships that, that form. Mm-hmm. Um, there's almost certainly right at the other end of the spectrum assault mm-hmm. and rape that these are the, right. the, the it's the full spectrum of sort of human yes. relationships that start to to develop right and in time. the middle of this crazy environment of war and the emotional yeah. stress and the physical danger and all of that and then this hierarchy of power like <laughs> so then, you know, it just exponentially it's an incredibly gets complicated um, sort of arrangement yeah. that has mm-hmm. has been put in place to address one challenge but then creates right like layer on top of layer on top of layer of right. other um other questions so when we think about how these um, programs and sort of relationships changed over the course of the 20th century what are the are, what are the major 
differences um, or continuities between, say, World War One and the Vietnam era? Yeah. Uh, in terms of continuity, I think there's the consistent hope that civilian women from home will give the boys some hope, give them something to fight for, give them an ideal of civilian life that they're supposed to fight for and then return to. Um, and I think that hope is consistent across the century. Now it starts to change a little bit, um, particularly as the military integrates racially. Um, that becomes a big sort of turning point hmm. for the military in terms of, um, right, they, they had had African-American women in World War One. there were three, exactly three African-American women. <laughs> In the entire war. Kara's holding up, th- like, three literally three fingers. fingers. <laughs> like, we can count them and name them. Right. Um, by World War II, they have more African-American women, but they're still, you know, despite the, the Red Cross and the USO's policy on paper that we don't segregate, in practice they do. Um, but then once the military integrates, that introduces, you know, sort of all of this, um, all of these questions about what does it mean to have predominantly white women in front of an integrated Mm -hmm. military now and is the military comfortable with that are the women comfortable with that how are we going to recruit african-american women which was particularly difficult in the vietnam war um and so all kinds of questions with that sure um and then as you integrate women right there's this hilarious moment in world war ii where they're the army realizes that they have all of these whacks who also need to have their morale boosted and some fun but like the like cute the girl next door maybe isn't gonna isn't gonna do it right not for all of them at least oh no like, no and we couldn't possibly can't talk think about, about that, that. <laughs> right and so they it, you know they just don't know what to do yeah. with it with it is and there then, ever any equivalent of sending civilian no. men i mean i can't think no. of any, right <laughs> no right, so there's not like a hidden program that we just don't we just don't no. know about okay. there was the one of the most interesting things i found so in the early cold war this is sort of late 40s early 50s um and, and maybe even the early 60s somewhere in germany they decide near one of the bases that they're going to have ladies night because they had had the practice of having strip clubs near bases for decades and nobody thought anything of it and all of a sudden this club decided they were going to have ladies night and word got out, and they shut that practice down. No more strip clubs. So, so there was a brief, brief second where <laughs> a moment, a moment. Um, yeah, the, it didn't last long. So, Kara, the last, um, the last chapter of your book, and we'll we'll give the full title. It's the girls next door bringing the home front to the front lines, and it's available now. You can people can go order it if they if they'd like. Um, the last chapter is called um, "No Beer, No Booze." no babes yes and so this is the era of the all-volunteer force and so yeah. there's if there's some continuities from world war one through the vietnam war there seems to be a, a pretty significant change yeah. after um after vietnam with the move to the all-volunteer force as the forces are integrating women more fully into 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 military service um seems to be one of the one of the major changes so what but at the same time the uso still mm-hmm. exists mm-hmm. um and performers still visit troops overseas so what what are the changes um what do we see happen in the era of the all-volunteer force yeah so right after the vietnam war programs like the red cross with the donut dollies that goes away um, there are no more programs that are specifically intended to send you know girls from home 
abroad to entertain a primarily uh, primarily a male force of young single men that kind of program goes away so special services starts to morph it changes names like 25 times before mm-hmm. it becomes MWR but it starts to morph into MWR and you see more um, more men working in clubs for example um, and instead of just sort of the women in the blue suits and the white gloves um, so you see more integration of um, morale work and it kind of takes on a broader context um, morale work starts to provide for families um, not just right programs to keep the boys away right. from away well the, from the force is the older registers. it's mm-hmm. more it's more married right uh, the 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 face of the forces completely different. is really changing and different yeah um so when we think about entertainment and, and that's a that's a, like you said it's a sort of separate piece we we still when i think about sort of uso entertainment like cheerleaders and right and others are still really mm-hmm. important parts of that and still quite gendered in terms of who the audience is Mm -hmm. what do we what do we make of that today yeah i mean so the uso (laughs) sends everything under the sun and it always has right um and i focus on the the ways in which women are used in particular right but you've always got bob hope and who also traveled with the gold diggers who were at the dance troupe Mm -hmm. and the miss america pageants and but there were always men going, and there's always been this crazy mix of shows you can go see. Of like, they're ventriloquists traveling with USO in the early 21st century, which blows my That's mind. That's fascinating. Um, that there are. I didn't even know they existed still, but <laughs> <laughs> you can see you know anything you want. But what I find really interesting is that even in the 21st century, where you have women integrating and more and more MOSs, and now all all jobs are open to women and we're trying to integrate women and, and fully integrate them. You're still putting women up on stage half naked and doing very sexualized routines and saying, here are some women you can look at and you can lust for those women and you can ogle them. But then these women back here are your comrades. Mm -hmm. And to me, that discrepancy is a significant problem. Um, that we can't have some women who are to be looked at and some women who are to be trusted with your life. And are off, and equal. off limits in right. in other ways. Yeah, and so I think that problem um, is significant. Um, that said, I do think the USO is getting better at that. And I think through the recent scandal with, um, with images coming out of the Al Franken tour and people behaving inappropriately and this whole Me Too movement, um, I think they are paying attention to issues like this. I think it is getting better. Um, so maybe that's a bit of optimism yeah. at the end. But I think, again, this, <laughs> this different environment, when the military looks different, when the overseas mission looks different, mm-hmm. when deployment cycles look different, you can imagine all of those sort of questions coming into play right. about what does it mean to boost morale? How right. do we keep morale high? What's the relationship between the home front and the war front? When you've got your cell phone in your hand and you can FaceTime the home front immediately. When it's much easier. Home front is not abroad. Home front is right in your hand. Much easier to to talk to literally the girl next door. Right. Or your wife or your mother. Right. um, Daughters. That those are all um, really different relationships than World War One. Yeah. In France. Where your boys are going to be seduced by... Oh, loose, loose French, right. loose French women. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think when if you were if you were going to give some 
advice to senior sort of military officers, military professionals now about how they how they might think or ask questions about soldier morale and welfare uh, in in deployed environments? What what questions or ideas might you say are important? No half naked cheerleaders. That's rule number one. I think that, and I seriously think that is important. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, it's not that easy because, um, I mean, frankly, soldiers have access to anything they could want to see. Right. I mean. Yeah, the same, the same electrons that let you FaceTime. Right. Home. There's an entire internet out there and I know things can, websites can get shut down, but. People are, people are are creative screened. Right. I mean, people get around whatever regulations there are. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, how do you get around that problem? I don't know. I think the, the onus is on the commanders and the people in charge to set the example and to not, um, to realize that offhanded comments matter and offhanded jokes matter and culture matters. And, so if you're insulting troops by calling them derogatory names for women or if you're using sexualized humor, that matters. And I think it, that might be the lesson, like to, that we need to model professional behavior mm-hmm. in all of our relationships. And if you couldn't make that same crude joke in a business office, then why are we making it yeah. in, in the military? And so morale and professionalism of the of the entire force, um, not just of the not just of the male part of the force, right? Um, right. And then and then this this divide between sort of different categorizations mm-hmm. of of women is maybe a maybe a thing to look at a little bit a little bit more closely, right? Yeah, I mean we don't have a force of nineteen year old single boys anymore, right? Um, it's it's not that that's yeah. a component of it. We've got nineteen year old single women. We've got forty five year old dads and granddads and grandmas and aunts and uncles and and all sorts of relationships right it's not it's not as simple as just saying here's the heterosexual model of family of community of home front um the the divide between home front and, and war is not quite as stark anymore but nor is the divide between home front equals women and war front mm-hmm. equals man and that, who who serves collapsed. and under what terms mm-hmm. And what that experience looks like. Yeah. Um, so, Kara, thanks so much for joining me here at War Room. It's been a fascinating conversation, and good luck with uh, with promoting the book and continuing to sort of talk about these really important issues. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.